Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to another edition of Between the Lines with Virtual Academy, our podcast going beyond the badge to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and also talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. I'm your co-host, Brent Henson, and today our guest is going to take us into a world that you know, based on the popularity of true crime books, TV shows, podcasts, movies, all that stuff, many people are genuinely curious about. For people like me who love the genre, we have that luxury of watching and hearing the events unfold without actually having to endure the danger involved. Today, we're going to hear the other side of that, a firsthand account of what it's like going deep undercover to apprehend some of society's most dangerous criminals. We're going to hear from him in just a moment. But first, we bring in our host, a guy who doesn't call them dangerous criminals. He prefers the term dirtbags. Mr. Michael Warren, how are you, sir? I'm doing great today. How are things in Tennessee? Lovely. Nice and bright. See, they're exactly the opposite here. If there was a day for naps, and I can't do naps the older I get because it messes up my sleep at night, this is a nap day. No. But to, to, for my boss, uh, it's after work hours. We're doing this recording in the evening. <laughs> yes, I just want to clarify that. <laughs> I'm, looking, I'm looking forward to this topic today because it's one that I, like I said, I am genuinely interested in hearing about. He's got a lot of material that he's covered. He's, he's written a book. Got a TV series. It's going to be really interesting to hear his perspective, I think. You know, it's one of those worlds where you think that you might have a good understanding of what it's about. But then when you hear somebody who's actually been in it, you realize that you were wrong, sometimes very wrong about what it's like. I can only imagine it's, and I, I hate to use this analogy, but it's like enjoying a hamburger, but not seeing how that hamburger is made. You know, you it, don't have to go in and see how it's, you know, and I'm saying. And some people are good with that. You know, some people are good not, not knowing that, and that's fine. But for those uh, those who want to take a deeper dive, I'm hoping that our guest today is going to be able to provide that for him. So why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about him, and let's bring him on and see what he's got to say. All right. Our guest today has 25 years of law enforcement and leadership experience, during which time he has served as chief of police for the city of Simpsonville, South Carolina, and since last August, he has led the Lawrence, South Carolina Police Department as their chief of police. Earlier in his career, he worked as a narcotics investigator with the Greenville Police Department and Greenville County Sheriff's Office, and then a special agent for the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency. In 2020, he released a four-volume book series called A Narc's Tale, which gives an inside glimpse of what it's like working undercover for six years. And earlier this year, a&E aired an hour-long program called Undercover Caught on Tape based on one of his undercover experiences. It's our pleasure to welcome to Between the Lines, Chief Keith Groundsell. Thanks so much for taking some time for us, Chief. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. It's, it's my honor to be here and speak to fellow law enforcement officers. Just to be clear, I'm just a regular guy, so I don't <laughs> want to put myself out there as such. That's you what guys they all are the real say. heroes. Hey, li listen, Chief, I'm, I'm just going to say that the use of the word regular in this context is a stretch of the meaning of the word. So just throwing it out there, Brent. Exactly. Hey, I'm going to start off kind of like we do with, with most of our guests here because I enjoy hearing this. It's interesting to me, especially today, how people make the decision that they want to be a law enforcement officer. Uh, I think that the people that are coming in the profession right now, it takes an incredible act of courage 
to make that decision because of everything that's going on. But what was it with you that made you decide that, hey, that's that's where I need to be? For me, it was my upbringing. You know, my father was a United States Marine for 22 years. He was an enlisted man. He was a grunt. You know, he was out in the field working his tail off. He worked three jobs. He had two jobs that he did on the side. Just I saw an extreme high level of work ethic, but he had an extreme level of pride when it came to serving his country. And that was one thing I knew early on in my life that I didn't want to sit behind a desk. And I kind of ironically laugh about that now because I'm a chief of police (laughs) twice now and I sit behind a desk, but I didn't want to sit behind a desk. I wanted to kind of have a career that I felt would be very exciting exciting and not knowing day to day what was going to happen. And I was either going in the military or into law enforcement. And that was at an early age for me. I knew I wanted to help people and I felt like uh, I could help people at a low point in their lives. And that was more meaningful. And it's kind of, it kind of became my mission as a young person to try and stay out of trouble. I acknowledged that early on. I had to stay out of trouble in order to be a law enforcement officer. Going to school was a big thing for me. I heavily was involved in sports. I went to uh, college on a soccer scholarship and and those things kept me out of trouble in order to allow me to have the opportunity to serve the public. And I went right into law enforcement. And uh, honestly, it's been a roller coaster, man. It's been it's been a wonderful ride. And I've seen so many different things from working city, county, state, federal, international six years. I mean, I've, I've been there, done that. I just feel so blessed. And it's not because I'm any better than the next guy. It's because I put myself out there and took advantage of opportunities and made many sacrifices for myself and my family. Well, let's talk about your dad for a second, if we could. You know, one of the things that I think that uh, a lot of people don't fully comprehend, and uh, one of our members uh, of the podcast, Aaron, grew up in a military family. It's not just sacrifices on the part of the person that's actually in the military. The family also has to sacrifice too, because very rarely, unless I think you're in the Air Force, do you get to stay in one place for a, a long period of time? Was that was that your experience as well? Exactly. And I think all that moving around kind of built something inside of me, which later on helped me out in my career going undercover because I had an ability to overcome and adapt and fit in really quickly with different crowds. I was born at Paris Island at the Buford Naval Hospital. My dad was stationed out there. You know, every Marine knows where that's at. And uh, so moved from there quickly to Camp Pendleton in California. From there, my dad went overseas. I, I spent some time in Louisiana for a while there. Then he went to Virginia for a period of time, just outside of D.C., Quantico, Fort Belvoir area, which I know that's an Army base. But after that, you know, worked my way back. And uh, finally, my dad retired in South Carolina. And that's where we, we stayed from sixth grade on. And uh, yeah, everything I saw in my father and in my mother, but in my father specifically his work ethic, I realized it wasn't going to be an easy life. It wasn't going to be about money or anything like that. And, and I was willing to make those sacrifices. And I feel I could be successful in anything I do. My dad instilled that confidence in me through demonstrations, you know, not necessarily through his words or anything like that. And uh, we made sacrifices. My dad was gone a lot. My, myself, I spent six years deep undercover. I was gone all the time. Then I spent six years deployed on international police missions as well. I was gone all the time. My family has made the same sacrifices. And it's kind of ironic. Now the circle goes around. My oldest son just got back from MEPS. He's looking at potentially signing a, a Option 40 uh, contract to try out to become an Army Ranger. 
and uh, so I'm su- yeah, so I'm super proud of him, and uh, you know I, I'm going to support him no matter what he does. But it's kind of ironic now he's looking at public service also. It's so funny. I tell my son uh, I'm never going to ask you to do something that I won't do myself. So at Christmas time, I say you write thank you letters, and I make sure that he sees me write thank you letters. So I think it's important nice. as a leader that you model behavior so they can follow in your footsteps. Amen. And having life's experiences too makes you a greater leader. You know, it's funny for me to transition from, I I never wanted to be a supervisor ever. I was the boots on the ground, ask forgiveness, push the envelope. I was a supervisor's worst nightmare. But for me, that helped me to survive in the atmosphere of between good and evil, teeter-totter in that line when I worked deep undercover. But now I look back at it like, my God, I feel bad for my supervisors <laughs> during that time period because I'm dealing with it as a chief of police. And, and I see that in my guys and I try and step back sometimes and acknowledge like, all right, that's maybe a sign of greatness. Just didn't come across that way initially. <laughs> you know what, Chief? I think it's. I think you made a, a really good point there uh, when you talk about the kids having to move uh, because we moved quite a bit because he was an electrician. He learned it uh, in the Air Force. Having to assimilate to a new school on a regular basis. My, my wife doesn't understand it. She lived in the same house her entire growing up time from, from the time she was born to the time she went to college. You learn very early on that, that you have to you have to mold yourself to different groups and to different teams absolutely and, and, and you know it's it's hard on a kid but there's a lot of people and so part of me wishes you know that i'd have had a little bit more stability with, with that but then yeah. i recognized the impact that it had on forming who i became when i became a police officer i don't think i would have been as good at it as i was if it hadn't have been for that Yeah, I contributed definitely my successes to that, being forced to do that, step out of your comfort zone, also playing team sports, knowing what it's like to fail, knowing what it's like to have to work really hard for something that you may never achieve, but being part of a bigger thing such as a team and uh, trying to learn from those experiences and, and get better through every single experience in life, you know, develop me into the person that I am today. And and I thank God for my struggles. I grew up, you know, I was diagnosed early on with a learning disability when I was in elementary school. For me, that was something that really challenged me learning things and memorizing things. So what it did is it made me have to study twice as hard. At first I looked at it as like, why can't I learn things or memorize things as quick as everybody else? And it would be much easier. But now I look back at it as a gift from God where I have the work ethic that second to none in my personal opinion and I always pride myself in that because I knew what it was like early on to struggle but I also knew okay I got to work a little harder that's okay I'm going to do that and then I saw my dad doing it as well so those are all things three things that have contributed to my successes in life that would be perceived by anybody else as a struggle Uh, you said you went to college on a soccer scholarship that is its own unique set of challenges because you go (laughs) from being a, a big dog uh, to yeah. being just one of the other dogs. That's a great point. <laughs> and you don't always get to choose your teammates, but you do have to Absolutely. work with your teammates. That team composition changes as people graduate out. So how did how did team sports, because I'm a big proponent, my, my kids play team sports. I am a huge proponent of that is such a great way and it doesn't have to be sports it it, it can be it can be clubs it can be band anything that requires them to work with others in order to accomplish the mission i think is incredibly important for kids 
So you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I literally was in my state. I mean, my senior year, I led the entire state in goals scored. I was a number one player in the state. I was being recruited heavily by multiple colleges, over 30 universities. And I was being recruited by one of my gonna name. That's one of the biggest, you know, soccer universities, Division One, and they went to the national championship that year, and they kind of cut their American recruits out. And at that point, I realized that soccer is much bigger than the United States, and and we're we're the small fry, although we've really grown a lot recently. But I realized I am just a small fish in a humongous pond. And I got there and there were 40 something guys on the roster, 23 of us dressed out. Vast majority were foreigners on my team. And uh, the guys that started over me initially was 30 something years old, had, had played all over the world. And who am I? You know, I'm just this local boy from South Carolina that did pretty well in my local area, in my state. But I I was nothing, and I got hurt pretty bad. I tore both my hamstrings in college, and that was my reality check. I went from being like a C student to a straight-A student overnight because I, I had nothing to do. I couldn't play anymore at the time. I went through rehab, tore them both again during preseason the next season. It was just like, well, that's that's the end. So I had a short-lived college career. I don't regret any of the injuries I, I went through. They built some character in me and taught me, like, you're smarter than you, you realize, and that made me strive later on in life. I graduated with my bachelor's degree in three and a half years. I graduated early. I went later on and got a master's degree, got straight A's on that. Those are things I, I didn't do it for anybody but myself because I knew I had a learning disability at a young age and I needed to prove to myself you're better than that and you're capable of doing anything if you put your mind to it. it may have taken me a little longer, but I was able to do it. Thank God. It's funny to, to me, the uh, recruitment process for police departments is kind of like the recruitment process for college sports. You know, they bring you in and they show you all the good things. They show you the facilities. You know, they t tell you oh, yeah. how good you're going to do. But once you sign the dotted line and now it's time to actually go do it. <laughs> now, now, now let me show you the work. Yeah. And, and, you know, trying to get people to understand that things of value require hard work. You know, uh, yes. Brian Willis, uh, a good friend of mine, he likes talking about do hard things. The hard things hey, are man. what truly make you. So, so you get out of college. How did you go to your first uh, your first agency? So so right out of college, you know, it's very difficult to get into law enforcement. You know, you if you don't have a family member necessarily or anything like that that's there. And and I kind of had I was kind of a guy I had a reputation. I grew up. I've been in probably seventy plus fights, and you know, I did a lot of a lot of wild things growing up. Thank God I never had any major law enforcement involvement <laughs> or anything like that. But I I wasn't the the golden child by any means on things, and I had my own struggles internally. So I put in and, and got hired by a local agency the Malden Police Department which is the area where I went to high school it was kind of funny I remember my first week on the job the chief calls me in the office and he's like Keith I had a complaint about you and I'm thinking oh my gosh I just I just got here I'm gonna get fired and he's like he's like sit down and you know this is the chief I'm it scared the heck out of me number one getting called in his office number two telling me to sit down my first week I hadn't had any other interactions other than you know swearing me in and he said I got a call about you today and somebody told me that you know you were a hothead and we shouldn't have hired you and I shook my head put my head down and I said sir I don't know what to tell you I'm not gonna lie to you I've been in some fights in my life I said but I, I hadn't hit anybody that didn't want to fight me 
but I never walked away from a fight either. And he looked at me and I'm like, oh God, here it goes. And he shook his head back and forth and he said, hell son, if you ain't been in a fight, I'll never hired you. <laughs> and he gave, gave me a hug and, and just, you know, it was, it was kind of an eye opening. He was an old school police chief and uh, he taught me a lot, you know, about dealing with people, acknowledging when somebody has a complaint against them and letting the officers know that, but you don't have to crucify them for it. But me knowing that that complaint came in made me want to work harder to disprove that. So what he did was a psychological thing that was a brilliant leadership quality. And, uh, and, and he taught me a valuable lesson. And, and I'm telling the story today because I remember that so to the point exactly everything he said and and it was just pretty neat so i started there and and did about three years uh, working in community policing i got hired under a community policing grant and i was blessed at the time in the 90s community policing was big and i got to go through all the community policing schools so for me what that did was it ingrained in me the philosophy of community policing is a police style it's not one or two people in a department it is a department-wide thing and it has to be ingrained in everybody in order to be successful it's a way of doing business rather than a position absolutely because i was hired under the same cops grants uh, back when nice. i first started we try to because we like paperwork and we like numbers <laughs> we we try to, to to create this thing where we have to justify Hey, what, what projects do you have going on? Well, it depends on what you mean by a project. You know, if I talk to a community member and there's a problem, I can go and solve it. You know, I suppose that was a project. It didn't feel like a project, yeah. at least one of the projects I did in school. It, it, it had to be good for someone like you who had worked in teams, who had been in a whole bunch of different communities getting introduced to the idea of this is how law enforcement has to interact with the community in order to be successful. Yeah, absolutely. It was a blessing for me. And, and I learned early on the old school mindset of going to a scene and being a peacemaker, a peacekeeper. Then I also learned the other aspect of it being a problem solver. And as the chief of police now, I look back and I have a high standard for my officers. And sometimes it's extremely high, but I do not like to hear an officer say, oh, that's a civil problem, ma'am or sir, we can't help you. You know, the reality is a civil problem could quickly result in a criminal matter but with a neighborly dispute or something like that. If we don't try and step in and be a mediator, if at all possible. And that's why I, I prefer to work in a town that's not too large. You know, a town, you know, anywhere from 25,000 or less is sometimes a great example of where it's fun to work, where you have the extra time to take on your calls for service with the individuals where you can do the problem solving. But in some of the larger agencies I've worked for, we just didn't have that time. And, and we are call to call. You got 400 plus deputies and it's just nonstop. But a 50 person or less department, sometimes you can be a little bit more personable. And that's what I, they say, you know, <laughs> not in a small town. So, yep. I mean, it's that, it's that relationship, you know, that you have with individuals that they got your back and you got their back. And it's, it's an amazing feeling when you're really making a difference in your community. You said something so incredibly insightful. How many times have we seen civil matters turn into murders? And th there have been neighbor troubles where, hey, they're blowing grass on, on, on my lawn and now it starts this argument. And now somebody grabs a gun and now we've got this this murder. It's one of the things I think we struggle with as a profession, though, because you can't quantify crime prevention. 
you know, how, how do we know we're being successful when you don't know what you've prevented because they don't know what's been prevented. Exactly. And, and, and I preach all the time with my officers, 95% of our work is just helping people and what you may perceive as a small minuscule problem of somebody complaining about a speeder going by their house every day with a loud muffler may be small to you, but in their world, that is their biggest problem. And if you don't address that problem, then you're not doing your job as a police officer. And that's 95% of the law abiding population. Now the other 5%, when they have a complaint and it's major drug cartels moved in next door, you know, prostitution, you know, all these other crimes, violent crimes and things like that, that is a major problem and that is a priority, but don't forget about the 95% of the people that support us and they just want us to address the little things for them. And, you know, people, I, I always say this, it's, it's funny because people, when they don't know what to do, they call the police. We've all had that call when uh, somebody's in a drive through line and somebody screwed up their Big Mac or something and they're like yelling at the manager and the manager's not giving them their money back or something. What do they do? They dial 911. You know, we've become a jack of all trades and it's gotten worse as society has evolved where mental health institutions have closed down where there's so many people on the streets with mental health issues police are the first responders we get there we have to learn to assess stuff that doctors haven't been able to solve in 30 or 40 years and have an instantaneous reaction that everybody will agree to when they watch your body camera footage later on but it puts so much stress and so much pressure on the officers to be almost absolutely perfect it's it's unrealistic and the expectations are so high it's sad you know to see law enforcement evolving in that direction i think if we reframe the way that we look at it you know instead of looking at it as being something as them bothering us how about we frame it as hey how honorable is it that that when they had a problem the first people they thought of to call was us well when 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 my kids when they call me with a problem man i'm just glad they they included me in in the solution that's so true And, and so if we reframe that we just uh, had an episode uh, with Ross Swope, and, and we talked about the whole idea of serving, of being a servant is so incredibly powerful if we frame things in that way. And, and I think that has to start early in people's careers. But you know what? It's also uh, like people call 911 when they need uh, help for these matters. But at some point, we need to start helping people figure out conflict resolution without having to call the police all the time. I think that's part of the problem, don't you think? Yeah, we started doing something. Well, we started a youth summer camp. And in our youth summer camp, we tried to mix up the group of children that were coming in. We didn't want just children that were from all troubled homes. We wanted a a mix so they can see the different dynamics of kids their same age. But we had a group, maybe four or five, that were the ones that were constantly in trouble in school prior to coming to the summer camp. And we really took, uh, took an interest in them and did conflict resolution with them. When they were having their meltdowns, we'd pull them to the side. We wouldn't let them get their way. You know, we'd give them a punishment like you get to sit out during this activity and you're going to watch and you're going to be supportive and if you say no or you're defiant with it then we're going to make you sit longer you know and there were consequences to your actions and then when we saw something positive we rewarded that and that, and that was a big deal and a lot of them don't have parents they're raised by a single parent or a grandparent and that single parent works two jobs so that they're doing the best they can they're just not there for them i think as police 
uh, doing more involvement in the schools, which we're blessed in our agency to have a, a school resource officer in every single school in our jurisdiction, even elementary schools. I, I think it really makes a huge difference on how children perceive police officers. And if those officers individually take pride in their work and do the problem solving and teach kids, not every time you come to a cop, somebody's going to be in trouble. It can be friendly interactions. I think we'll go a long ways. And, and Brent, I, I love what you said there because uh, we've become a society that when it comes to conflict, it, it seems like the, the options are either fight or quit. If there's a relationship between two people, so something comes up that they disagree on, they, they either fight or they break up. And, and it doesn't seem like there, there's ever that ground where we say, listen, it, th- these things have value. And perhaps that's that's part of the problem. We, we need to get to back where we, we value relationships. We value relationships with our neighbors, the people we work with, and, and maybe we'll be better off as a society. And those lessons, you know, as a young person going through that conflict resolution, that trickles up, you know, towards you as an adult when you get into a, a leadership role or something like that and you have conflict. Do you run from the conflict or do you weather the storm? Do you help to become part of the solution or part of the problem? You know, a diamond is made through pressure. When you grow a plant, you plant a seed, you cover it with dirt, constant dirt on it, water, dirt. You're going to run through dirt and pressure and leadership. What you do with that is up to you. And if you survive those, you'll become the diamond. You'll become the prospering plant or the growing plant. Simple. I know people are different than diamonds and and plants, but that's, that's just the concept that I try and instill in my leadership here. Weather the storm, be a part of the solution. Don't just be a complainer. And, and and I think, and we'll, move on here but i think one of the things we have to reframe in society is that working for that resolution is not a sign of weakness absolutely you know fighting isn't a sign of strength always and compromising isn't a sign of weakness it's a sign of maturity and that's what we should be striving for picking your battles is something i had to learn i used to fight every battle thinking i'm a non-procrastinative type of person so i'm like (laughs) issue address now (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and honestly, it's it's backfired on me sometimes as a leader, and I've had to have some self-realizations and do some apologizing and uh, try and grow as a leader with each, you know, failure comes growth as long as you allow it, or you're just going to fail again and again and again. Absolutely. It sounds like that, that you had a good basis at the beginning of your career, but at some point, you got into undercover work. How did that come about? Yeah, it's it's funny how, how it happened. It wasn't planned. You know, I went three years on patrol, doing community policing, bike patrol, all those different things. And I went from Malden City to Greenville City, which was about a 200-man department. Went from like a 40-, 50-man department to a 200-man department. And I'm in orientation. And all of a sudden, two big dudes come to the door, knock on the door, interrupt the orientation. They got beards. And they're like, hey, Keith Grounsel in the room. You need to step outside. And I'm like, oh, what's this? <laughs> what's going on here? These don't look like police right here. So they pull me outside. And they don't really say a whole lot to me. And they say, hey, we're so-and-so with a vice narcotics unit at Greenville City Police Department. Let's go talk to Captain Henderson. I say, yes, sir. So we go into Captain Henderson's office. They say, from now on, you're assigned to vice narcotics. You're going to be working undercover. Uh, You can't associate with any police officers. You have to come up with a backstory as to why you no longer work in law enforcement. 
And it was just like a shocker to me. Uh, I had a young face at the time, and they were looking for somebody to go undercover into the all-night dance parties called Raves. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and I went into that ecstasy world. And to be honest with you, I knew absolutely nothing about ecstasy. <laughs> I, I was a young face, and it was just kind of coincidental. I had led my department for a couple years in drug arrest, but that was street-level little stuff. I had never infiltrated street gangs or done anything like that. And, uh, and man, I tell you, I made plenty of mistakes. I, I literally made plenty of mistakes. Did it boil down to your look or was there other factors involved in that as well? Um, the fact that I had already done three years in narcotics in a neighboring city, I was a new face. I wasn't coming in a green, green rookie cop that didn't know anything. So I understood the Fourth Amendment. Uh, I, I wasn't going to violate people's rights and things like that. And I think my look helped a, helped a little bit. But if you see like any of my pictures from my book, I can change my look constantly. And, and I think that was a psychological thing I did to make myself feel better that nobody would recognize me. But yeah, I, I immediately bleached my hair platinum blonde, got piercings on my ears, got all the baggy clothes, the glow sticks, the pacifiers for the clinchers with ecstasy and, and started to live that life like I was doing that. I was going into work at like 10 o'clock at night, coming home at eight in the morning. Somebody told my mom I was a stripper. You know, there was, there was all these different rumors that went around and, and it was funny because I couldn't tell anybody. And then you really realize who your real friends were. You got people say, I knew he was a dirty cop or it's just like, oh, I knew something was wrong with him. And, and, and the reality was I was working undercover and, and I was told not to tell anybody. And, and I took the role serious and I, and I embraced it. And, and, and I studied like videos, like movies and because actors study their roles extremely. I would go in chat rooms back in the day and talk to other drug addicts and stuff like that. And I just head first into the role and it started out to be like a one to three month operation and a year later and three operations later and i was still there to, to be clear for our listeners most people when they think about undercover they think about growing out the beard putting on harley shirts and that's <laughs> that, that that's not the type of role that you had right there no, man, I, I went into a different role with the platinum blonde hair. I, I had the, what they call the pinstripe beard, the doper beard, I used to call it. You know, uh, the piercings, uh, the baggy clothes. I was probably the guy that the bikers wanted to beat up when they saw them, you know. I mean, that, that was the crowd that I was trying to fit in with. And then I went from these, these all-night dance parties to overnight into a, a bisexual and homosexual nightclub atmosphere where drugs were so prevalent that it blew my mind. And that to me was a very uncomfortable environment. I, I'm a heterosexual male. I, I, I love women. You know, I'm saying it was very tough because it's a very touchy feely environment. And I had to come up with a backstory to ensure that nobody was going to grab me or anything like that. So I told him I was bi-curious and I'd never been with somebody and I don't believe in public displays of affection. And they were respectful of that. And I was able to buy a tremendous amount of drugs in that crowd. And uh, it opened my eyes to a whole nother realm of poly drug world. I know that you're apprehending criminals in this world, but uh, immersing yourself amongst these people, did it give you a greater appreciation of why they went this route or what their worlds are like? Or you understand what I'm saying? I 100% understand what you're saying. That's the psychological side of it that's that that was hard. Uh, I remember I infiltrated a group, a gang out of Florida uh, called the Hot Boys, 
And um, I, I worked my way up with different guys in the organization. And the way I got in was I saw them about to get in a fight in a club one night. Um, I also saw that the bouncers were about to break it up. I kind of got in behind them. I was like, yo, I got your back, man. And uh, I act like I just wanted to fight. And they saw that, and it was kind of odd, but they, they weren't going to turn down another hand, you know, in a fight with a rival gang. And thank God it, it got broken up before it got started. But the reality was I, I was willing and able to fight. Well, one of the guys recognized me from many, many years ago when I was in middle school at I guess he used to be some like break dancer or something like that. And he recognized me. I thought I could dance back then too. So don't laugh at me about that. <laughs> but yeah, so he recognized me in that aspect and he vouched for me to these other guys. And long story short, that case went on for a long time and they ended up trying to, to rob me and, and try and kidnap and kill me down the road on a big drug rip. But he vouched for me the whole time. And uh, he got shunned by the by the gang later on, and uh, was on suicide watch in jail and things like that because he put his name out there, and I kind of destroyed that. And he has no family or anything like that. And he did have my back on a few things. He wasn't part of the attempted kidnapping, robbery stuff, but I, I had some sense of like, in a heart of hearts, is this guy evil? No. It, did he go down the wrong road? Yes. You know, it's a fine line between cop and criminal. You know, when you're young and you kind of want to be in the action, you can go outlaw or you can go cop and, and do it legally. You know what I'm saying? But follow the law. And uh, I think the best cops were the ones who were raised without a silver spoon in their mouth and lived kind of a tough life. When you got into this work, what was perhaps the biggest misconception that you had about undercover work that you had going into it that was just blown out of the water that's like hey you know what okay. i thought it was going to be this way but it's not that way at all have you ever done anything in life that's like super exciting such as skydiving or something for the first time and what do you want to do when you're done you want to tell some people like man it was badass this is what i did well it's badass scary as hell you don't get a second take. You could die at any moment. It's not like acting where you get take one, take two, take three, but you can't tell anybody about it. <laughs> so it was kind of like a, a super high uh, that you couldn't decompress and talk about it in a, now that you've calmed down. And that was where I got into writing my stories down. I, I, I was going to say, that. you had to have an outlet, so you I found did. one. Yeah. So I found my outlet. My outlet was writing my stories, and, and I started writing them originally before I had any children. They ended up, ended up getting married. And, and there's a lot of sacrifices that your spouse has to make when you work undercover. I mean, for example, you would go out, and you're bound to run into somebody you have to have a plan you never wear a wedding band you don't want people to know you're married you don't want people to know about kids if your wife and your child are out with you that's just a side chick you know what i'm saying and she has to know that when they approach and they look like they're not the normal cops approaching keep walking keep moving on i'll get a ride home you know go move and then later on in life you know you run into people that you put in prison i've ran into quite a few of them and uh 90% of them are, are friendly and they shake your hand. And as long as you did it right and you did it fair, you know, and they got busted and most of the time acknowledge you saved them. But sometimes I've had to tell my sons one time in Walmart, I saw the dude, I said, y'all go to the car. Here's the keys. I said, if I don't come out, call your mom. Here's my phone. And I went and confronted the guy because I saw him staring at me and following me around. And long story short, he, he hugged me. 
you know, gave me a bro hug, you know, type of thing. And he was like, man, without you, I'd be dead. He was a stick up boy for a gang. And uh, we ended up taking him down. And he actually was a guy who was going to kidnap and kill me. And he, he went to prison. You, uh, I, I saw where you, you said a quote in a news story where you're talking about your book. You told a reporter, a reporter said this, that you wrote this book, this series of books, uh, as a way of trying to explain to your children why you did the work that you did that took you out of the home for days, weeks, months at a time. I'm sure it was frustrating for them. It sounds like they're old enough to maybe comprehend it a little bit more. Um, can you talk about the impact that it had on them? And do they have an appreciation of the sacrifice that you made uh, for you know your community and the society as a whole? You know, you always hope that they that they have that level of appreciation. My kids are 19, 16, 13, and then we had adopted a, a six-year-old. I, I want to say, yes, they have that appreciation. I, I do tell you this, like I instilled in them how bad drugs are. Constant conversations, I mean, extreme conversations. My 19-year-old son, my 16-year-old son are at that, you know, that prime age where most of their friends are out there smoking weed and doing different things. And uh, and I feel truly blessed at the decisions they've made to the point where they've gotten into fist fights with their buddies so they don't have to do something. You know what I'm saying? Or they just jump out the car uh, somewhere and, and dad, come pick me up in the middle of the night somewhere. And that... I know I instilled something in them, but then I think they have that inside of them. You know, once that that base is there, they have that, that intestinal fortitude where you're willing to stand up against your peers who are peer pressuring you to do bad things. So I hope and pray that they've learned, you know, all this. I, I, I try and always be humble. I, I don't think I'm better than anybody. I think I truly have been blessed. And I think I've lived 10 lives. I feel that way. Uh, my kids really don't know a lot of it. They were younger during that time. They know of some hits that have, you know, been on my life over the years and things like that. And, and I make them aware that there are bad people that may want to do bad things to them. And I hope and pray that never happens. But I always feel like I have to tell them these things. And my struggle now is hoping my kids don't strive too hard to think that they have to get one up on me and do something extreme in their life. And it puts their lives in jeopardy. It's just like my son wanting to go into military, going to special operations. You know, the thing for me is I'd be super proud of him no matter what he does. I just want him to find a passion and a love. And, and I hope he knows I love him no matter what. You don't have to do this for me. You know, and that's always been a fear of mine that they you always want to try and be the next generation better. You know what I'm saying? Than your parents' generation. And, and I I think they can in their own light. You know, they have to find their way. Well, I think there's a difference between, you know, being a, like a touring rock musician and being away from your kids and the home and what you're doing. You're creating a positive impact to try to make everything better for your children family and, and your kids. Yeah, original. I mean, that's how it started. And I'll tell you, like, my way of getting out, when I was a special agent with the Drug Enforcement Administration, I was stationed in western Kansas. I worked all over that region in the Midwest and did a lot of, like, high-level cases, different cartels, all the way down to street-level stuff. And it got to the point where, at the time, my wife went through a postpartum with our second son. Uh, we had no support system. 
you know, there were only a couple agents, a bunch of task force agents. Nobody in the community knew that I was a special agent. I was undercover. That was what I, I concentrated in. That was my emphasis, like my specialty. And like, there was nothing for her. And, and I felt like helpless to a degree where I didn't have anybody. And I asked for a hardship move from the DEA, a voluntary move. Then I asked, can I try out for the fast company like DEA special forces to go over to Afghanistan and things like that. They put a freeze on that. I had nothing. And that, that resulted in actually, that was when I got out of working as a special agent with DEA got out. And I actually left the day I got out, the moving truck came to my house. I moved my family back to South Carolina to have a support system around them. I flew out to Washington, D.C., went through a couple of weeks of training called the Crucible, and I deployed to Afghanistan. And, uh, you know, I was there two years. This is the only way I could afford to have two mortgages. I, I, I couldn't leave, you know, one place where the house wasn't selling. You know, it was right near the housing crisis, you know, when things were really high. But in western Kansas, there weren't a lot of businesses and we covered 36 counties and the drug cartels were just it was amazing the things that i saw there and um but i i made a decision my family and uh i don't regret that decision but that was kind of what got the ball rolling and got me towards supervision i quickly became the national commander over a 5,000 man swat team and riot team in afghanistan and i did that a couple years that was my very first taste of major level leadership and the only reason i got that position is my drug experience 95 percent of the world got their opium from afghanistan to you know produce heroin which supported al-qaeda funded all the terrorist network so poppy eradication program was one of my programs that i was also responsible for it was just an amazing experience for me um working overseas but then again my family sacrificed greatly because i was literally gone you wouldn't see me for six months one, one of our recent guests phil kearney we talked he was he was in he was with dea and uh, he and I had gone to college together, but he, but he talks about his time, the amount of time that he had to spend in Afghanistan, because he was part of the investigation uh, into the, the drug lord there that was responsible for about 20% of the world's heroin traffic. It, it, it's one of those things that there has to be a shelf life for people in that type of work, simply because if we hold on to them too long in those positions, then they pay a price with their family. And that price, it just isn't worth it, no matter how good, no matter how big the cartel, because that has lifelong implications for, for their wife or their husband, their kids. It, we just There has to be a shelf life. Definitely. I mean, working undercover was extremely exciting, ups and downs. But my, my wife at the time and my children got no recognition for their sacrifices and that's where the books came into play as well you know i pay a tribute to them throughout the book series and i hope you know i don't even know if they've sat down and listened or read because i have them in audio to the the full extent of the series because it's four books and, and they're long and they're all short stories but my sister for example says she can't she can't read them she can't listen to them because i saw her interview where she said i i, I just can't do it and i i I can't blame her for that, really. And, and I and I respect that, you know. And there's a lot that uh, I'm divorced now. I went through a divorce, and I don't I don't say it was necessarily the undercover work as much as it was as a chief fighting corruption, <laughs> and, and all the turmoil politically that I had to go through before we indicted the mayor and convicted him in court, indicted the head of investigation for rape and murder cover up, and all these different things that I did as chief. And from my house being shot up to my dog being killed, you know, to 
threats in the mail that broke it that was the straw like i survived all the undercover work i survived six years of deployments two years afghanistan two years haiti two years west africa liberia uh, you know going to jordan india i've survived all that but the leadership the politics and all that was honestly worse stress than anything at least uh, as an undercover cop if somebody tried to do something and there was a gunfight or something like that i feel content with my abilities to fight and shoot and all that kind of stuff but when you're being attacked politically for doing the right thing and standing against corruption and you know people who have no no ability to defend their actions they make up stuff to distract from what they've actually done that was the hardest thing I've ever done in my career. It, it cannot help but have an impact on your family. If it's hard on you, it's going to be hard on them. The people behind the people with the badge just don't get their just recognition for their sacrifices and the strength that they bring to the people who are standing in the front lines. Absolutely. And that's the thing. So I've been divorced for some years now. I have a fiance now and she doesn't come from a family of law enforcement. She's extremely supportive, but this is all a learning process for her. And she's very in touch emotionally with everything. And she's been a great buffer to talk to. I think my ex-wife did a phenomenal job during that time period at not wanting to talk about things with me because I had to put on this face and this shield, you know, in order to not be distracted by my family life while I'm working undercover because at that time, I could never do it again now. My mindset is different. You know, at the time, I lived a little more carefree. I lived like I didn't think I was going to live past the age of 30. I wasn't scared of a damn thing. I didn't think of the consequences as much till I started having kids and things like that. So now the human I am, the man I am today could not do what I did because I would have a slight hesitation, which would probably have resulted in me being killed in a couple of scenarios. So I, I acknowledge that it's a, it's for the younger generation some of the the deep undercover stuff and and I, but i love to mentor and advise that group and empower them and you'll pardon my ignorance here but how does it how do you transition your mindset from being undercover for so long to getting out of that world and going into where you're not undercover that's got to be mentally tough i would think so Undercover, you have to have a, a skill set. I used to teach when I taught at the Federal Undercover School. It was called relaxed intensity. And that sounds like contradictory. I tell people on the outside, you always have to appear relaxed. But on the inside, you better be a fire just ready to burst and attack or fight for your life at any split second. That skill set has transferred over into leadership. On the outside, everything's good to go. But inside, damn, <laughs> you're going through a lot. You're under a lot of stress. I think that has helped, you know, to transfer to the top leadership. It doesn't help if you're going from undercover to uniform patrol, where you have to be in tactical and blade people and do different tactical things because you have to have a tactical mindset undercover, but you can't present yourself as tactical because then you're going to look like a cop. So that was, that was a, a transition. And I went from deep undercover to national commander in Afghanistan. So it wasn't as hard for me. I would think it'd be much harder if I'd have went to uniform patrol and tried to transition there. But my skill set would have of 
acknowledging and seeing certain indicators of drug traffickers would have definitely helped me to make bust on the streets. Well, now, Chief, uh, I'm going to give my, my co-host here uh, uh, another kudo. Brent and our friend Aaron, they run a podcast called Crossing the Streams, which is a musical podcast because they're both incredible musicians. But one of the things that, that he's talked about before that I think that it does is that one of these days, Brent's son is going to grow up. And those podcasts are going to provide some insight into his dad that can only be uh, achieved through listening through music. And I think that's incredibly powerful. And it sounds like that that's what you've tried to do with your books is to provide, hey, listen, when you decide to take the dive and find out more about your dad, you know, that's up to you. I'm not going to force it on you. But here is a window into me. It had to be a good release, but thinking about having that impact on your kids potentially years or even decades from now had to be incredibly powerful too. Yeah. And and I wrote the books. I was going through a divorce at the time, a separation and a divorce as the books were being published. And I, and I made it a point to not acknowledge that in my books. You know what I'm saying? It was about what happened when we were married and and the great things that you did to support me along that route. And I know those things took their toll on your life. You know, so I write a whole section in the book about the mental effects and how it affects your family and things like that. And and I believe that's a, a, a part of undercover work. Not a lot of people talk about or acknowledge. I can say I'm, I'm mentally very tough. I feel like I am. I'm very disciplined and everything, but everybody has a breaking point and everybody needs, you know, to, to have an outlet for their things. Me, my outlet became fitness. I couldn't go to the gym or anything and work off my stress at the gym. I couldn't do that. So I had to figure out something. So I built a gym in my garage. I worked out like crazy, but that was also developing me to fight for my life at the same time. So it was dealt. So now still to this day, I, I, I literally work out almost seven days a week on a consistent basis. I'm 48 years old. I'm not a super stud like you know, fitness rip junkie or nothing, but it's important to me to live an active, healthy lifestyle. And in my department, I pushed that on. We're doing our first ever mandatory annual fitness test at the end of this month in our department. It's about being fit for duty. Obviously, we're going to tweak it according to age and, you know, somebody's blown their knees out or something like that after working 30 years. But the reality is all I wanted to do was spark something inside and ignite something in somebody that if you get to a scene, and you take five, 10 seconds to turn around in your seat to get out of your car and they dialed 911 expecting you to come save their life, but you can't even barely get out of the car. That's a problem. You are not fit for duty, you know, and do something about it. And we're going to be here to help you do something about it. So our new police department, we just moved in a couple of weeks ago. We have a massive gym in it. Uh, we give free family YMCA memberships to our whole department, all city employees. Those are things where our city administrator is a former commanding officer in the Army, and he understands that type of stuff. I'm in a great position now as the chief of police where my support staff, my supervisor, the city administrator, and the mayor fully support everything that we're trying to do. So it's, it's pretty amazing you know, when you're able to implement things like that and change lives. I think that one thing I wish that we could get across to young officers is that you need an outlet. You know, you found Absolutely. an outlet in your writing and in your physical fitness 
you need an outlet. And the, the thing is, do you want to choose what the outlets are going to be so they can be used in a positive manner or are the outlets going to be chosen for you? Uh, because exactly. uh, unfortunately, some people turn to alcohol and some even yes. turn to drugs, addictive behavior, you know, like gambling or, or, and I'm not against extreme sports, but there are some people who do it to the point of challenging death. You know, very early in people's careers, explain to them this job is stressful. It, it's the front row seat to the greatest show on earth. It's, it's, it's in my opinion, the best yeah. job in the world, but there are consequences for it. But we can mitigate those if we choose those outlets. Yeah, one of my biggest weaknesses as a leader is uh, not having a work-life balance. I'm, I'm constantly asking people to hold me accountable. I am a workaholic. I'm an extremist. I, I, I pick a goal and it's going to be the highest goal and I drive, 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 drive. And sometimes don't enjoy the little short wins along the way as much because my expectations are so high. You know, getting my books published, I wasn't happy. Getting a TV series, I'm not happy. You know what I'm saying? It's not that I'm not happy. It's that I want more, more, more. I want to achieve more. And it's hard to work for a guy like that. And, and, and I acknowledge that. And, and, and I even had a meeting just this morning with my two top guys and, uh, and went over some of those shortcomings I feel like I have as a leader and what I want to do better to further empower you guys. Y'all proving yourselves to me, and I appreciate y'all. And and just a little self-reflection, and, and that goes a long ways. And I don't think I did anything perfect in all those undercover deals that I did besides survive. And, and some of them I made mistakes that cost the case, you know, or maybe get looked at differently, but I survived. And, and it's those things, don't Monday morning quarterback or judge somebody after the fact from your couch why they were doing something in the heat of the moment and they had to make a life and death decision and they literally could have died and you're going to sit there and be like, well, if I was in their shoes, I would have done this. Come on. That, that, that's a pet peeve of mine, and I know as an administrator it happens, but I always try and step back before any final you know, decision is made and put yourself in an officer's shoes at that moment. Yeah, when, you, when you've got nothing at stake, it's, it's easy to break things down <laughs> and, and be critical. Yes. And, 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 you know, Chief, as we're wrapping things up here, uh, something you said there really, really hit home to me. It's really a fine line between being satisfied with the small victories and what some people refer to as complacency. I don't think having that, those being satisfied with small wins makes us complacent. It's when we stop trying to continue the small wins that we become complacent. But it's, it's a really fine line. It's like a really fine line between being prepared and being paranoid. You know, I got to be prepared for the bad guy, but I can't be paranoid. There's a bad guy. Everybody's <laughs> a bad guy. And, and exactly. I think that that's one of those things where true professionals and true leaders are constantly looking to ensure that they're on the right side of the line. Absolutely. I, I think uh, personal growth and development only comes through pressure and feedback that's hard, you know, and, and it comes from people that should feel empowered on your command staff, especially as a chief, should feel empowered enough to tell you and do it in private, you yep. know, praise in public, scold in private or whatever, but it has to have a constructive element. Now, if you bring something, I'll still listen and I'll probably process it 
more later. But if you bring it in an aggressive manner where you don't mean any good out of it other than to put somebody down, I'll hear it. But I'm not going to like it or react as well as I should <laughs> when you do that. But if you bring me something from uh, and deep down in your heart, you want to help me to become a better leader and understand the culture of what's going on, the vibe of your department or a division or something like that. Any leader that shuns that is a fool, you know, because that is insight that you're not seeing. And if you don't take the time afterwards to self-assess and address some of those issues quickly, you will fail. And leaders constantly evolve. The highest level leadership means greater responsibility. You are the servant to your people. And if you forget that, then move on. You're not, you're not in the right line of work. There is a relationship between the higher the level of authority the higher the responsibility to your people. And if you can't maintain a balance between those two, you're probably not cut out for leadership at that level. I tell people, I feel like as a narcotics investigator for all those years, uh, I feel like narcs are a different breed of people because you got to be self-motivated. You can be lazy and just sit there and do nothing, but you're not going to make cases. It's not like a burglary or a property crime. You get the report. You know, as a narcotics investigator, you got to self-initiate. You're a self-starter. You're highly motivated. You got to be aggressive. You got to have street savvy. You got to be able to deal with people to get them to confess, inform us to be able to trust you, to allow you to infiltrate crowds and different things like that. So I love to hire prior narcotics investigators in high-level positions. Most of the guys that were in my old narc units are judges, have been chiefs, have been top cops in huge organizations, and they've always been successful because they're self-motivated. There is a drug nexus in about everything we do in law law enforcement. Mm. 95% of all crimes in some way, shape, or form has a drug nexus, whether it be alcohol, uh, somebody drinking too much, committing domestic violence, somebody stealing to support their drug habit. It is linked to drugs. And if you always concentrate on going after the high-level drug dealers, getting help for the drug users, and educating the younger people along the way, hitting it threefold, you will find great success. When I was chief in Simpsonville, we increased our drug arrest 287%. We completed 40-plus community-based programs. And in two years, we went from the number 28 safe city to number one in the entire state of South Carolina. My goal here in this agency where I'm at now in Lawrence, South Carolina, we were 151st safest city when I started. We broke the top 40 in nine months. I'm praying that we go continue to go in that direction. And my goal is still number one, but I, I know some things are out of your control. You know, you could have a domestic violence, murder, suicide that is totally unrelated to your crime rate that could occur and it could double your numbers overnight in a certain category. So I'm, I'm always aware of that, but it doesn't mean I'm not going to set my goals to number one and try and achieve that. And enjoy the fact that you've taken it from one place to where you're at now. Absolutely. It's such, and it's all about my people and empowering them and showing them the vision. It's not about me. It's, it's, I have the vision and they bring the ideas and I allow them to do their ideas. One person can't do it. It takes a community support level like that's out of this world where people trust you more. They bring you more information. They know you're not going to burn them. They know also you're going to attack the issue because if you constantly complain about the drug house next door and nothing gets done, they're going to quit complaining. They're going to take it in their own Mm -hmm. hands eventually. But if you address it relatively quickly or let them know, Hey, trust me, we're on top of this. We're developing a long-term case on this. Just got to 
trust me and bear with me. Continue to send me tag numbers, continue to do this, but do not intervene. And then you follow through six months later and you take out the organization, you execute search warrants, trust is developed even further. And they know you're not going to burn them. Their name's not mentioned anywhere in those reports. That's the key, trust. It's the difference between taking a report and making a case. You know, it, that is shifting that, that emphasis for, for our frontline people. Anybody can take a report. It takes somebody who's dedicated, motivated to make a case. And that's what we need to serve our community the way that they need to be served. I agree wholeheartedly. It's all about the community. Absolutely. So, so Chief, where can people go to get information about your, your book series? The easiest way to go to my books is the, the books are called A Narc's Tale, N-A-R-C apostrophe S, Tale, T-A-L-E. They're on Amazon. You can get them at Audible as well. You can buy them on Kindle. Uh, you can order them from pretty much any bookstore. They're not necessarily going to have them in stock. But Amazon's the easiest way to have them drop shipped in paperback. Or you can download the digital immediately. Or you can download the audio immediately. You know, And you uh, can go to the episode page of this here episode. And we have a direct link to cool. all four where you'll be able to find them just as easily. Awesome. I hope everybody, you know, checks out the books, but also Undercover Caught on Tape is a, a series. Uh, I have a couple of my stories from my book that are airing in, in the season coming up. Uh, it showcases undercovers from across the entire United States. It's not just me. There are phenomenal undercovers that do great work that nobody knows about. They're telling these stories as actual real videos, and then they're explaining the after effects, even with informants they're talking to, suspects they're talking to after they've gotten out of prison. I mean, it's pretty amazing uh, how it affected their families, the mental effects. It's coming out on January 15th, I believe, at the, at the New Year's. And again, that's Undercover Caught on Tape, and it airs on A&E. Yeah, we've got a promo for the, uh, the trailer, I mean, for the, that uh, show and uh, the show notes as well. I watched that this morning. Hey, you know, Brent, I learned something today. Uh, I learned that not all undercover work is portrayed properly on television because it typically people look like they're in a biker gang, but that doesn't mean that the other cover <laughs> work isn't as equally as dangerous and equally as beneficial. Yeah. So I'm looking forward. Uh, you know, I'm a reader, so yeah. I'm, I'm a book guy. So I'm going to be uh, checking those out. Also going to be checking out the series. But Chief, thanks so much for being with us today and sharing your story. Our best wishes to your son as he pursues the, this, uh, I, I think, the best branch of the military, the, the army, uh, <laughs> keep us up to date on that though, because we, we'd like to hear about it, but thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, thank you guys. I appreciate you having me here. Keep doing God's work. And listen, we encourage you to uh, check out his book. It's called a narc's tale. It is, uh, broken up into four different volumes. First volume is uh, city police officer work. Second and third volumes, the uh, county vice and narcotics investigating uh, units. And then the uh, fourth volume is the federal special agent with the uh, U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration. So you can kind of work your way through it. And we'll have that link in the uh, show notes section of our website at Between the Lines with VirtualAcademy.com. Chief, it has been great talking to you today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Mike and Brent. Have a good one.